I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 277. And today in the show, we're joined by Scott Manifold of Drury Outdoors to discuss the story of his Michigan hunting property, how habitat management and hunting differs between his farms in Michigan and Iowa, and detailed ideas for improving food plots, hunting access, and much, much more. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show, my guest is Scott Manifold. He is originally a Michigan native who has hunted and owned farms in Michigan and Iowa and Missouri. And uh, he's been all over the place across the Midwest and the country hunting. And he's also a longtime friend of Tom Ware, who together the two of them film for our buddies over at Drury Outdoors. And I somewhat recently discovered Scott uh, and that he actually lives not too far away from where I am in southern Michigan. So recently he invited me to tour his property, take a look at what he's got going on. So this past week, the two of us headed out and walked his Michigan property. We explored all of the different tweaks and changes and improvements that he made to this farm over the years and, and kind of just dove into how he's improved this little chunk of dirt for deer and other wildlife here in Michigan. And and that's just cool to see. I, I always geek out when I'm getting to see firsthand how someone else goes about these types of projects because I've got all sorts of ideas and we listen to so many different people here on the podcast about how they are actually trying to improve where they hunt for deer and for wildlife. It's, it's something that's endlessly fascinating to me, but when I actually get to go out there and see it myself, it takes it up to a whole nother level. And so I think it's really cool to be able to then have a conversation just after that, talking about things that both of us actually saw. And hopefully we're able to communicate that to you in a way that makes it more helpful and interesting as well. So that's the game plan for today. I think um, the property kind of content's very interesting. I also found that Scott has an attention to detail with everything that he does, whether it be just hunting or managing and improving a property that was really interesting to see and to hear about. Uh, he also has a lot of ideas around deer behavior and movement that I think could be helpful to anyone, regardless of if you own and manage a property or if you lease property or if you're hunting public or by permission. I think there's a lot of things in here that can be applicable to to any and all of you. So in short, this was a really fun day in the field and a fun conversation that I'm excited to share with you. So I think we should just get right to it. All right. I am sitting now in southern Michigan 
in the basement of a home, and I see over my left shoulder, I see like a 180-something-inch deer and a 190-something-inch deer and more 140s to 150s than I can probably count. And I see several elk and a whole bunch of mule deer and a pronghorn. Um, I feel like I'm surrounded by royalty as far as, <laughs> as, far as whitetails right now. And, and sitting next to me is Scott Manifold. Um, Scott, first off, thanks for, for today. Thanks for taking the time to, to chat with me and for showing me around your place. Because what we did, and I'm, I'm rambling here before I even let you talk, um, but Scott was so kind as to take me out and walk me around his Michigan hunting property. A really, really cool place. Show me all, all of what he's been up to, the projects he has in the works, and what he's done in the past. And uh, it's been a lot of fun, Scott. So thank you and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, and it's great to have you. Uh, it's always good to have another set of eyes. Uh, everybody sees things a little differently, so I appreciate your input. Yeah, and it's, it's as we were talking about out there, I just geek out so much seeing how, just like you said, each different person's mind goes about scheming out of property, figuring it all out. As we were walking, you were kind of talking about that's the fun part when you get a farm is the scheming. It's like figuring out how you're going to do it and where the deer are going to move and how this change could influence this movement and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I can see that we are like-minded in our excitement around yeah. that. Well, for us whitetail nuts, I mean, that's, that's all part of it. And yes, it is fun to figure it all out. And sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but it is, it's a fun, fun journey. It's that, it's that journey, it's that process, yeah. So, so Scott, I, I know of you and knew you because of my relationships with the guys over at Drury Outdoors. Sure. Um, and you are doing a lot of stuff with them these days now too. Could you give us like a real quick cliff notes on, uh, you know, what you're doing now, how you got to this point? Sure, sure. Well, um, you know, I grew up hunting Michigan, the farms around here and chasing the whitetails. And uh, as I got older and maybe a little more successful in life, I always dreamed of uh, hunting Illinois. Well, Pike County, that was the place, right? Mm -hmm. And you... Uh, you see on TV people killing 160, 70 inchers in Pike County. That's Pike County. So I thought to myself, someday I'd like to go there. Yeah. And uh, leading up to that, I had been clipping out uh, articles in the back, snippets in the back of the magazines of outfitters in yeah. Pike County, right? So the day came. You know, I finally felt like I could actually go on this dream hunt of mine to Pike County. So I, I delve into my folder full of these little cutout ads, uh -huh. and I started thumbing through them all, and I, I gravitate towards one, um, and it was Bucks Beware, and it was small, you know, kind of innocuous, and I thought, okay. maybe this would be the kind of hunt I could afford. It doesn't look, you know, too overbearing, <laughs> okay, yeah. and uh, so uh, I call a guy, you know, and he answers the phone, and oh, man, he, he uh, didn't have any spots left for that year, whatever, and but he's like, go on my website, get on the mailing list, and maybe something will turn up. Well... Turns out uh, this guy that I was talking to was Tom Ware. Yeah. And for those of you that follow Jury, you know he's, he's uh, quite the land manager and what a deer hunter as well. And uh, what he did was eventually email me within the month saying, hey, I've acquired a new Missouri property. Are you interested in going out there? I can't promise you that it's set up real good yet. We've just got it. You'll be the first one to hunt it. And... Uh, I said yes. So that kind of got the ball rolling. I, I didn't actually meet Tom when I went to Missouri. He sent somebody out to get me organized in that. But after the hunt, I 
you know, sincerely thanked him because it was it was a great hunt, uh, a great little cabin back in the woods. Uh, I spent a week there, and I had my crack. I missed a 160 oh, with man. a bow, yeah. And uh, so just I think the fact that I contacted him to say, you know, I didn't kill anything, but I am extremely happy with the way this turned out. And then I had a very good time. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and, and then it wasn't long. He said, you know, would you be interested in shed hunting that property with us in the spring? So I got a chance to meet him. And in subsequent fall, I did get to go hunt Pike County. And while I did not kill anything there, mm-hmm. it was great to hang out with Tom and, you know, all his guides. And uh, it just became a, a relationship that Tom and I developed and a lot of shed hunting and, and then uh, going to uh, Iowa to help set up his farm that wow. he had, you know, had there. And, uh, that was the sort of thing I really enjoyed was building the food plots and then figuring out where they should go, what we should put in it. I mean, right down to figuring out what kind of fertilizers or yeah. how much lime needs to go in there. And so uh, we, you know, became close friends over, bonded over that, as yeah. you can imagine. And uh, eventually uh, it led to a, a going hunting on his Iowa farm. He invited me out just to hunt with him in yeah. Iowa. And, uh, so, uh, you know, that continued for years. I even took my, my children to go out on the shed hunts. and And we always worked every August out there. And, uh, you know, I started harvesting some deer, and they were on camera because I was a friend of his. Yep. And then, uh, you know, a few years ago, um, you know, Mark just kind of came to us and said, you know, Scott should, uh, should be on the team. He's a great contributor, and, uh, you know, I like what's going on here. You guys are make a good team. And so our team blossomed to a three-man team but that's cool uh it, it it's uh kind of a dream come true for you know the uh, guy growing up and uh, never having a whole lot of uh what do i want to say opportunity like mm-hmm. that you know hard work dedication to the dream and it gets there as, as you know uh, yeah you know sometimes you get what you put out put in what you yeah out. yeah and I, I think for any michigan hunter to 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 go from what we all know is can be challenging sometimes here at home. It can be great too, but it can be challenging um, to a different kind of great <laughs> in yeah. Iowa, or Illinois, or Missouri. I'm sure it's just been a different experience out there. It is, uh, and I have had great success in in Michigan. Don't you know? Not knocking Michigan, yeah. But there is a lot more hunters. There's a lot more pressure. So yep. when you go to Iowa or Missouri or even uh, Southern Illinois. It's a, it's a different world, and the biggest thing that I noticed right off the bat that has blown me away, and I still tell people, the biggest difference is how much time you can spend watching deer be deer. Mm, yeah. Here, the deer's primary focus is survival. Yeah. You know, because there's uh, someone just walked down the other property line. You know they did, and the wind is wafted through the woods. So yeah. deer are on edge all the time here. But when I started hunting Iowa, the, the deer— just did what deer did. They'd come out, they'd spar, they'd act normal. There was no, uh, they didn't act spooky. Yeah. It was just so different. Rattling worked, grunting worked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and here. Yeah, Good luck. Yeah, I I just don't rely on those tactics because uh, they've been used too much and the yeah. deer are too on edge. And But out there, it, it, they really work. And it's just really lack of pressure. I mean, uh, a lot more daylight movement out there. Yeah, um, for you know, you want to get a four-year-old on its feet in Michigan, whew, that can be a, that can be a challenge. Yeah, there a lot of them go nocturnal. I've got uh, one that I've pursued in Michigan now for a few seasons, and uh, you know, I get pictures every year, 
and I've only ever laid eyes on him once, and yeah. uh, it was right at dark. Yep. That deer has been on the farm for, he's well, he's, I think, eight this coming year. Wow. Yeah. So Jeez. he's ancient. Uh, and he's always just been a really big eight point. But the age is a, is another reason I like to go after him. He's mature. Yeah. And, boy, is he tough to beat. And, and that buck, I would say, if he were living in Iowa, would be a lot easier to kill. Because he's probably going to come out to the food during daylight from the lack of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So whole different set of challenges. Yeah, it really here. is. And, and and I can attest to this, some of the same things you said too. Like growing up hunting in Michigan and only knowing this, I had no idea what it was like until, I don't know, eight, nine years ago or whatever it was. Ten years ago, I started traveling to some of these other states. And, yeah, when you go to Iowa or Ohio uh, or Illinois – um, not only are you seeing, you know, older deer more often, you're seeing more daylight activity, you're seeing them act um, more normal. One of the really cool things I noticed was the vocalizations you hear. Like I'd never heard a buck roar or a snort wheeze or anything. Like never once in 20-some years <laughs> had I ever heard something like that. And then I go to Iowa and I'm, I'm seeing a buck lip curling and snort wheezing and grunting all sorts of crazy stuff and, and getting to see, like you said, serious bucks fighting. And it's just a... It, you know, whether or not you have goals of, of killing an old buck or a big buck or whatever it might be, traveling to some of these other states can just be a lot of fun simply because of the, like, the wildlife experience is just different. Like getting to see, like you said, getting to see these deer do deer things um, just doesn't happen as much in, in super high-pressure states. No, that's, that's very true. I mean, in Michigan, you heard <clears throat> grunting, really. Uh, you didn't, and usually there's the guy on the other side of the fence <laughs> yeah. line grunting on his tube. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, or it was a, a year-and-a-half-old buck uh-huh. harassing a doe, maybe. Yeah. But but out there, it's, uh, the vocalizations are super common, mm-hmm. and, and you do hear and see all that. And uh, and it is during daylight, mm-hmm. so it's a, it's yes. a, I hate to say it's more fun, but it, it's just uh, – it's. It's different, it's and, different. and the topography is different out there. The pieces of land tend to be larger. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of 10-acre, 20-acre, 40-acre pieces around here uh, in, in Michigan, and so coming up with a, a bigger piece of ground can be difficult. And, and when you break uh, a block up, a block being like a 600-acre, square mile, mm-hmm. whatever, um, a lot of times there's 20 houses on it. All right. Where, and if you get in some of these other states, uh, you know, the blocks are more like two square miles, three square miles, and there might only be four homes on the whole thing. Yeah. So just a lot less, lot less people yeah. and a lot more, a lot less pressure. Now, all that said, despite these challenges that we just mentioned here in Michigan, um, you've just shown me that you've still been able to have a lot of success here in our home state, despite all of those challenges. Um, and it seems like a lot of that has been kind of near where we are right now on some of this property we just walked. Um, and that's, that's kind of the – I do want to talk about one, some of the things you guys have been doing out in Iowa and Illinois and Missouri. Um, but I'm just selfishly particularly curious <laughs> about Michigan too since I spend so much of my time here and you know, starting to look into the possibility of, of possibly trying to find a little place that we can start fixing up and, and see what we can do with it. Um, so I'm just really fascinated in the story of how you started that here. Um, how did the how did it start for you buying your first hunting property and farm, and, and what did that look like in the beginning? Well, uh, probably nearly 25 years ago now. Uh, but we, my friend and I, knew about this property, and it had uh, 
you know, you saw a lot of deer here, and that was that was a big thing. If you were seeing a lot of deer, that's pretty special here in Michigan yeah. 30 years ago. And uh, through simply asking permission to hunt, uh, she offered to sell the property to him. And we, you know, we were young then, and it was a stretch, but we did it. And uh, we elected to try and farm it ourselves. It was 57 acres but it butted up to an 84-acre woods. So the deer naturally filtered into those cornfields, uh, bean fields, whatever we had in that year. And I did, did that a few years, and, you know, it worked well. We did, we did harvest some deer. And, and at the end of the day, the government had offered these CRP programs, and we decided that, wow, well, for the money that can come in on this and, and the fact that we get to plant trees and brush and all that into here— uh, I think flowering dogwoods, all kinds of stuff where it was worth it to us to do that because the end goal for us was deer hunting or pheasant hunting. It really mm-hmm. wasn't to be farmers. Yeah. So we simply took the 57 acres and said, okay, we've got a clean slate here because there's nothing here. Yeah. What can we do? And in the program we were enrolling in, uh, we were going to need to plant some 2,500 pine trees along with some switchgrass and maybe, I think, goldenrod and some other shrubs and stuff that they expected us to put in, and they were going to help pay for that. So it was kind of a no-brainer when it came down to it uh, to do that. And so we watched this cornfield basically morph into cover over the last uh, couple decades. But every year it got better and better. The pine trees, you know, went from two foot to three foot to four foot and the weeds were better and the briars and it just got thicker and thicker and we saw more and more deer in it. And, uh, we did, we did leave out nine acres to two, four and a half acre fields so that we could always have some grain to offer, you know, the deer and another couple acres for food plots out of 57. But the rest of it was really put into pine trees and bedding area. And, you know, if you don't have a long-term vision, you know, you're never going to get there. And uh, what, you know, what I've always said is if you have an idea that's going to take five years, you might as well go for it because at the end of the day, five years is going by you either way. Yeah. You know, five, you know how fast time goes. Yeah. So at the end of five years, you can either have what you were dreaming about having or you can still be stuck in that rut of, oh, it would take so long to do yeah. that. So, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of kicking yourself in the butt and just getting started on it. And it took a lot of work to get this rolling. But now it's, uh, you know, it takes care of itself. Yeah. It's 57 acres pretty well. And all we got to do is maintain the food plots. Yeah, I feel like this is something that I know, um, having looked at properties myself and talked to buddies who've looked at properties and stuff, lots of times they'll find like a big crop field or a property that's a series of small fields or something and just see, well, there's not a bunch of big timber on it. There's not a lot of cover on it. Not what I'm looking for. Um, but it seems like that's kind of what you guys had and you transformed it into something more. Um, Absolutely. How long did it take? To, to, to make that change a positive one? Like after year one, after year two, did you start to see positive things? And um, how long of a roadmap does someone have if they're trying to convert old field to, to deer habitat? Hmm. I would say my favorite years, actually, after starting it, was probably years five through ten when the pine trees were at that four feet to 12 feet level and there was okay. a lot of weeds in between them. Yeah. Uh, those are some of the better years. But... Having said that, uh, it was an instant improvement in that uh, we were able to put in some green plots, too, intermixed with it. And even if it's just weeds or briars that are surrounding that food plot, like ours was the first couple of years, um, 
it still gives them that sense of security that they'll come out into that. Yeah. And prior to that, we had just had, you know, like I say, corn or beans, which work, and not knocking them. But when you threw in the uh, green plots too, it really was a bonus, and they were drawn to it. The other thing we did was we actually added a little water, and it was kind of a simple move at, at first. Uh, seemed maybe a little silly, but uh, we took just a kitty wading pool yeah. and yeah submerged it and and kept that full of water best we could but you would be amazed since we don't have a lot of water right here how fast they would drink that down and during the rut we would literally have to fill that every five days or so take the tank back and fill it wow yeah and and you know trail cameras come along we get pictures of the deer standing in it at bucks uh, during the rut and Granted, you know, they weren't like, weren't being overrun with shooters or anything. Right. But the point is, um, it kind of added to the, the smorgasbord. Now they got some green, they got some water. Uh, now they're not traveling an extra 300 yards to get a drink. They're going to take that easiest drink that they can, even if it is out of an old kiddie pool. Yeah. And, and they <laughs> laugh, but they really did use it quite well. And, you know, now we've maybe moved on a little bit from there to, to make some better water yeah. sources, but that's how it started. Yeah, that's cool. Another thing I saw that you did out there in that old field area is you've kind of broken it into smaller sections with with screens um, or something along those lines. Can you describe kind of what you guys did there? Yeah, well, we, we left uh, two four-acre pieces <clears throat> for farming purposes just to have grain out there, but uh, the one that was particular uh, back there by— um, our say our favorite blind. Uh, you get a lot of time in the blind, so you think a lot of a lot of thoughts. And one of the thoughts that occurred to me one day was, what if this four and a half acre field that I have? What if straight out from the blind, I was to uh, put in a, a hedgerow, build my own? You know, everybody. And uh, the thought being that we had watched these deer step out of the woods at the time and step into our field and the food's right there, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't necessarily have to go very far to eat and or if it's a rut, uh, they could see the whole field. So they knew, you know, if there was a doe there or what was going on on, on the whole field. So on a whim, you know, I actually went out and bought a tree spade, one that went on the back of the tractor, you know. And started wow. transplanting. We remember we planted twenty five hundred pines, so I had a lot of pine trees, yeah. and, and and a lot of autumn olive had come up, and a lot of honeysuckle had come up. And I literally built a hedgerow straight out from the blind that divided that field in half. Now, as you seen that today, it, it looks pretty thick and pretty big. It wasn't always, but yeah. again, long term vision. It didn't have a whole lot of effect on the deer at first, but as the years went on. Uh, it worked, did have the desired effect. They step out into the field, they check that field out, and then they wonder what's on the other side of the hedgerow yeah. they can't see. So then naturally they're going to walk across and have a look-see on the other side of that. So it was just a simple thing. It didn't take much crop out of, much field out of production, and it gave us a chance to, to bring the deer out further to investigate and maybe a chance to harvest them at that point. But just uh, one of the little features that, that we added over the years. Now, not all of them work like you hope. Right. You know, you try some things, and you got to be willing to change when it doesn't work. But uh, overall, the experimentation part of it is some of the funnest stuff. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you uh, recall how long ago the, the tree koi came out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I remember that. Yeah, I think it was— uh, 
Steve Bartella wrote an article. If I'm saying his name right there, yep, yep, yeah, yep. yeah. He wrote an article, and in uh, he had placed a tree, dug a hole, put a tree in the field, right? Yeah. And uh, it seemed like a great idea. He said it worked. Yeah. Well, why not, right? So you know, by now this is uh, I'm hunting with Tom now, and it's an island, but. Uh, as an experiment on one of the Michigan food plots, I, before I go telling everybody this great idea that Steve had, I, I'm going to try it, right? Yeah. So I put this tree koi out in the field and uh, uh, put a camera on it. And pretty soon, uh, getting all these pictures, and I said, Tom, this works <laughs> in bottom line. Right. So he's like, okay, we got we got to do this on some of the, the Iowa plots. So we tried it on one plot that year, for starters. Uh-huh. Phenomenal. Scraped up, shredded. Remember, we're in Iowa now, so yeah. uh, deer do what the deer want to do all the time, yeah. kind of sort of thing. Uh-huh. And uh, phenomenal success with the with the you know the reconics over that tree koi. Yeah, and it scraped up, tore up. Bottom line is now that is a tool in our arsenal that's used every single food plot. Yeah, you know, fifteen yards, twenty yards out in front of the blind, we're putting a tree koi. Yeah. And if you watch much of the jury stuff, you'll notice that a lot of bucks are killed coming into that that tree koi. Yeah. So very effective tool and just a you know simple idea, but again experimenting and yeah, uh, that was one of the things that I felt worked really well. Yeah, it's definitely something I've I've added to my repertoire too. And I haven't killed one coming into to something like that yet, but it certainly has helped me get a lot of good trail camera pictures in those areas. Um, and I'm sure it's, you know, one of these days it'll work out for a shot. So it makes a whole <laughs> lot of sense. It's pretty cool. Well, we learned a very hard lesson this year over a tree koi. Did you? Uh, it wasn't actually uh, me hunting. Tom was hunting with Brandon and it was in Illinois. And uh, the, the tree koi is a particularly beautiful one. <laughs> <laughs> the deer loved it. But it had, a, it had a lower limb that came off at about, oh, I don't know, a foot high maybe, and it angled upward, right? And uh, usually, you know, the, uh, if a deer comes in, they'll work their way around it or be near it, and, and you'll get your chance. Yeah. But this particular deer uh, was over 170 inches. Yikes. Yeah. And he came in. It was it was like it was scripted. He came in this tree koi, and for minutes, he's shredding it. And poor Brandon, I mean, he's at full draw. <laughs> and and then he has to let down. Then he has to draw again. But uh, the whole time, this limb that was left on there was right smacked across the vitals. And I don't know about you, I probably could have aimed at the limb and I'd have got the deer just how I wanted. Right. <laughs> but but, but <laughs> sure enough, if you aim to miss it, you probably hit yeah. it. Uh, but the bottom line is he didn't feel like it was a clean opportunity yeah. and that the deer exited stage left, walked straight uh, away from him after two minutes. That's uh, brutal. He had to have a, a, a boon, a gross boon, buck that close. Uh, but Credit the tree koi for bringing him in and giving two minutes of time to, yeah. to harvest him. And if that limb's not there, it's it's a buck that won't even hear the string go off. His head was in the limbs raking him. Yeah. And it was great, made for great, great video, exciting Gosh, stuff. I bet. But, uh, just a little tree koi story there. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty awesome that that kind of situation would, would arise because of that. Now, what about the reverse situation? So have there been any things – Maybe on this, the first 57 in particular, maybe if you can think of any, in which you tried something and found it didn't work and had to rewrite the script on some project you tried out here or some change you made to the habitat. Um, was it, Did anything like that pop up on the first chunk or no? Yeah, actually. Uh, there, 
Uh, one of the things that m- may be regrettable is, uh, and it actually the, this occurred um, when I was still trying to farm it. Uh, well, first five years we owned it, I farmed it. So uh, to make the farming life a little better, I removed a fence row. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I look back on that and think, ah, what did you do that for? Yeah. Because, you know, eventually it was going to evolve into the whitetail habitat it is. And yeah. uh, I would love to have that fence row back. Yeah. And it was a, you know, because it was a mature fence row. Yeah. And, and at the trees. end of the day, I wasn't in it for the corn and the beans. I was in it for the deer, turkey, pheasants. And, and squirrels, whatever would live in a nice thick fence row like that. So, yeah. so yeah, that is one thing. I wished I had had not have pulled that out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure as you've now expanded your um, your projects to to include other other farms and stuff. I'm sure there's all sorts of other things you've learned over the years, and maybe we'll get into some of those. Um, but but one other piece on the on the 57 on that first chunk. Um, what about the hunting on that? Because I think a lot of times one of the questions people have, especially somewhere like Michigan, but anywhere really, is can you take a, a small property like that, 40 acres or 60 acres, uh, something smaller than that, and really notice a change and actually see better hunting and better recreation or whatever it is? Um, did you see real change that improved your hunting in, in the, the time you had out there in those early years when it was – just turning from a cornfield into this new wildlife paradise did that did it come to fruition for you a hundred percent yeah the uh <clears throat> the, from the beginning until uh now even it's so much better i if you're into deer hunting it's a must do <laughs> it just wow uh i would say 10 years in by then um we were seeing so many deer uh, and, and a lot of the reason is, of course, now we're in Michigan, so deer hunting pressure is so heavy. And by us taking this 57 acres and just making it this twisted up mess of pine trees and Russian olive and just an entire mess, it attracted as a safe haven so many deer. I remember taking uh, uh, people hunting and seeing 100 deer in one night. Wow. Now, we were, <laughs> by, yeah, so we were into the, the, the taking those at that time, too, because the numbers were so high, but they weren't when it was just a cornfield. Yeah. It wasn't like that. Once we thickened it up and gave them this safe haven they could go to, hunted the wind, and we were strategic and didn't push them out of there like so many you know people do by walking in at the wrong times or walking through or deer driving, whatever it is. Yeah. Those deer ended up on us, so we were seeing tons of deer. Uh, I can't so many year and a half bucks. You can't really count them now. It is still very hard to get them to three or four or five years old in Michigan. But the deer numbers were way up. I took my cousin one night, and uh, he said, "I just, Scott, I just want some some doe meat." And I said, "I tell you what, I'll take you back there on one condition: you don't shoot a deer till we've seen forty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Well, <laughs> I." did want some meat. And I said, you'll have your meat, you know? So, and it, and it happened just like that. I mean, we got to the deers 39, 40, 41. Like, okay, go ahead. Wow. But remember, now this is uh muzzle order season usually, but by then, um, many of the deer have been pushed so hard that they were really coming to us for, yeah. for sanctuary and the, uh, 84 acre woods next to us, which we'll get into, um, that also harbored a, a great many of them. 
And, you know, it, if you can give them some sanctuary in a high-pressure situation, you, your odds go way up. Yeah. And every now and then, you know, a big one slips up and you get that 140, but uh, you just increase your odds. The, yep. the downside is with that many does, you know, and you, and you, if you do a, a late-season doe hunt on that, while it may be fun, uh, you don't really know how many of the does that you're taking are actually yours because yeah. they get pushed in from all over the place. Yeah. That's one of the things I've always struggled with on on one of the main spots I hunt in Michigan is that it's usually the spot I've got the best chance at, like a decent buck in Michigan. Mm-hmm. It's the spot where I think I can kill a mature buck, but I'm always like on pins and needles. Every little thing I do on that farm, I know that if I make like one mistake, I'll probably never get a shot at him because... Uh, a lot of the best covers on neighbors' properties, so I'm just hoping for him to, you know, just be. I'll have like one or two chances during the year, and if I screw it up at all, I'm just not going to have those. So I'm very, very, very particular about what I'm going to go in and what I'm going to hunt. So that's all to say that I've always been paranoid to go in there and try to shoot does early, right? Because if I shoot a doe and it runs into that one main bedding area and I have to go walking through there, that that might completely eliminate any chance of seeing that mature buck in daylight again so because of that i always end up waiting until december to shoot does and to your point sometimes i'm wondering well i'm seeing tons of does now but now yeah there's just a lot of deer in general but um but yes i'm always pushing it back late i'm always rush rushing at the end trying to trying to fill enough doe tags um and then to your point you might be looking at a large number of does that come from all over the place not necessarily representative of the home core range does right right um, you might not even take one of your local does I mean, right. when you have numbers like that rolling in i mean to me uh you know you're hunting maybe an agricultural field, hoping that the deer come from the cover and give you an opportunity to get to you in, in daylight. Yep. So, and another reason for taking a piece of 57-acre piece and making it into what it is, is the person who holds the cover holds most of the cards. Yeah. Because that's where 90% of the daylight movement's going to take place is in cover. So if you're just hunting an agricultural field, it's a lot harder on you. Yeah. And, and, and for me, we had a choice because it was ours. We could either have the corn or we could have the cover. So we elected to do a little bit of both. I mean, we went from 57 acres of food down to uh, nine, 10, but all that cover put some of the, some of the cards in our hand. So we were getting a whole lot more daylight walkers. Yeah. And something you said while we were walking uh, resonated with me. And, and that was that when you do have that cover, when you do have the ability to, uh, to house more deer during daylight on your ground, you all of a sudden have like a disproportionate impact on the future of the deer herd of the entire area. Because if more bucks are staying in your chunk during daylight and you're choosing not to shoot the young bucks, then these deer that maybe otherwise would have been spread all over and shot by other people, maybe you now have a larger number of bucks than usual hanging out during daylight in your property during the fall or during gun season that otherwise would have been shot. And you are maybe, you know, even though you might only have 57 acres, if you make it the 57 acres that from November 15th through the 30th, all these bucks want to be in because they know it's not nearly as bad as everybody else, else, all of a sudden you could have a really significant impact on what bucks make it through for a whole large area maybe. Um, It kind of sounds like you kind of had that impact, right? 
Yes, you do. Uh, to your point, <clears throat> most people get excited about opening day. I mean, it, if Michigan could somehow go from a state holiday to a national holiday for the 15th of November, they would. Yeah. Uh, and personally, I'm not a big fan of that date because it happens during the rut. Yeah. Uh, and I wish that would change. But uh, uh, to your point, uh, I would generally not even get too excited about the gun season until about the 18th, 19th, and then the 20th. Now, by now you've had several day-night cycles and several people just getting out in the woods, like a million hunters, you yeah. know. And so by the time we got to the 20th, we had a lot more deer on the property, and my odds of taking a 140 went way up. So, you know, to your point, yeah, they get pushed in on it, and having the cover pays dividends, and you can hold bucks that you wouldn't normally hold. Now, who do you know that would say to you, well, Mark, I don't care for the opening day. I, I prefer to wait till the 20th for my opening day. <laughs> Not many people. Yeah. But I'll tell you who it is. It's, it's those of us with cover. Yeah. So, you know, for, for me, if I can give them a place to feel safe and go to bed, uh, I'm not doing something right. Then nextly, if I can give them something to eat prior to going out to the big agricultural fields, better yet. Yeah. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. So, so you were able to do that to a degree on your 57, 
But then recently you were able to take it to a whole nother level. You've, uh, you've alluded to this 84. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about how, how you came to, to own that? Well, I mean, it always had been next to us uh, here on the 57. Uh, but um, <clears throat> basically, uh, you know, the, the fellow that, and his wife, they passed away and the family offered to sell it to me. And at that point, you know, the, the idea of, of having that tied in with this original 57 was very appealing to me. I had a, at the time, I had a, a Missouri farm. I was fond of it, but to me, it was worth the trade. So I, you know, sold out of that property and and into this one. And uh, it has really uh, made it, so I can take it to the next level. Uh, this, it wasn't an overly hunted property, which is part of the reason some we had so many deer around to begin with. But how often do you get a chance at a clean slate with 84 acres of timber? I mean, there was barely any paths in this to walk on or, or ride a four-wheeler on. There wasn't anything really yeah. in there. Well, quite a few tree stands, but um, I've always found that, you know, that, that can be difficult if you have a tree stand out in the middle of a hardwoods. I mean, right. your wind's going somewhere. So at best, you know, it's, it was kind of difficult the way they did hunt it uh, when they did, in, in my opinion, but... Now tying that back into the 57, I've got that nine acres of grain out there and another couple acres of food plot, and then this 84 acres of solid timber. It, it, it was it was an opportunity. I mean, yeah. I, I walked it, with, you know, with some people and just picking their brain. You're one of them that can see things, and and I come back to the you know land management. Uh, it's it's. The clean slate thing is so exciting for me. Yeah. I, yeah, I am looking forward to seeing how this turns out in five years, and I and I have great feelings about it because you know I've been around and doing this long enough. I know it's going to work work really well. But you know, day one walking into this new timber and going hmm, and the thing is, it was not uh, uh, a mature timber. It wasn't like the kind of woods that you turn into a city park. Right. So uh, while that has a certain appeal to certain people, uh, it doesn't so much to the deer. And, and this woods was um, new by uh, wood standards. I think probably 70 years ago it was pasture, you know, and with some fence roads in it. Mm-hmm. And so it's been let go a very long time, and it has grown mature enough to have been logged a couple times. But overall, you saw it, it's just loaded up with trees that are— 16 inches or less. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of light gets through and that gives you a lot of undergrowth. Yep. And so, so walk me through what those, I don't know if you did this in a matter of weeks or days or months, but when you first took possession of it and now you're starting that process you just described, it's, I have the blank slate. I have 80, I have an 84 acre rectangle of, of solid timber, relatively young, pretty thick. And then I know that there's food to my one side that's on the 57 that you own too. Walk me through how you looked at it, what you were thinking, how you started planning. Okay, these are the first things I need to do. Like, how did you walk through that plan? What did the plan look like? Well, the plan originated 20 years ago. I've been sitting next to this woods for a very long time. <laughs> Just dreaming about so, it? Well, you spend time yeah. in the tree stand, you get time to think. Yeah. Uh, and boy, if I had that property, this is what I would do. Mm-hmm. But one of the first, foremost, and obvious things that I had always said to myself was, you know, there's a power line running through this, uh, you know, it, up towards the front. And why why not, if the power company is going to keep it clear anyway, why not 
put that all in clover. Give the deer something to, to eat. Yeah. So without even walking the property, you know, I was able to identify something right off the bat that I would do different. Okay. And uh, then once I sat down and, you know, really thought, hey, I'm going to own this. What what am I going to do to this property? It really comes down to one word, access. Hmm. How am I going to access and not blow the deer out? You know, how are we going to keep it? It's very much a sanctuary, yet make it huntable at the yeah. same time. So one of the first missions was to create uh, some roads around the perimeter uh, towards the outside edges of the woods. Yep. You know, you got to give something to get something. So some trees are going to have to fall over, <laughs> and and you you know you're going to have to drive in there. And you're going to have to walk around it. You can't hunt on property without going into it. Yeah. But uh, being attached to the 57 and being attached to the road. Instantly, you know, I had access from three sides, and that was key yeah. right there. So first thing, I mean, first thing we did, I did, was get a bulldozer and, and navigate some trails along the edges, you know, wide enough to get a tractor down through and, and start the process. But um, the, the the process of deciding where to put food, you know, a little bit more involved. So what I tried to do was identify what the deer, how the deer moved naturally anyway. So, in other words, I knew that out the backside of the woods uh, that there was a big water source. It was 40 acres away, but it really was about the only thing around back there. So, my thought was, okay, if I can get to that backside, maybe get a little food source in the back of this woods, maybe I can give them a little something to eat before they head out in the dark to go over and get a drink from that lake. The one thing they're going to need is water, period. They've got a drink. So somewhere, I mean, I knew they were getting water. And this particular property had little to none on it. So that was a major consideration for me. What way are they already wanting to go? And how can I intercept them, you know, without much of an invasion along yeah. the way? And and that, that worked well. And, and on the other side of the property, I know that they were going out to a cornfield or a bean field. And from years of just monitoring deer activity from the road even, I had— could see where these deer tended to exit the property, you know, and, and go in the cornfields. Yeah. So you've got so so you've got deer moving from the core of the eighty four bedding area and sanctuary. There, some are heading out towards this cornfield. Some are heading out towards this lake or water source. Some are probably heading out towards the fifty seven and the food up there. Would you say those are the three main directions stuff emanates out of the? No, I would say there's four. So they're heading so, out the other direction too. Yeah, yeah, they're they're actually do exit on the roadside uh, very heavily because there's uh, some some massive agricultural fields over there, and okay. you know, so you've, you've probably hit some along the way. But <laughs> yeah. deer are not afraid to cross the road. This is true. And so uh, I this this woods. I mean, it it looks great from satellite. It, it really does because it's it's big and it's in the in the surrounded by food essentially. Yep. And so they're going to migrate out of it in in this case four directions. Yep. And of course, you know, the road being one of my access points, you know, it's not invasive at all hardly to, you know, pop in 50, 60 yards off the road and have set up a good spot to hunt. And then the sides were a little more challenging, yep. you know, but to to access and and some of them can only be accessed when the wind is just right. But uh, being that I had the 57 acres uh, with other road frontage, I've been able to access the back quite easily too. So uh, 
good access. That's really what it comes down to. And then when I decided where approximately within this 84 acres to put the first food plot, I simply looked for something that could be farmed, somewhat flat maybe, and not too many humongous trees. So, yeah. so when I found this little valley that I thought could be farmed and would be right in the migration path to the water, yeah. it was, I'm going to say, 70% sassafras, soft maple, trees that I didn't mind losing. So, you know, that just played into it all the better. Yeah. You know, and then I knew that, you know, to the uh, north of it and to the south of it, through walking, it, the bedding was phenomenal. So, uh, you know, I was able to find a little spot to tuck this in that I don't feel tore up too much cover and it didn't destroy too many good trees. And uh, that's where we put it. That's and a, that a, was the first food plot in, in the 84 acres. And it's 100% secluded from all sides too, right? Oh, yeah. But but close enough on one edge that you can walk the perimeter and then walk in, I don't know, 40, 50 yards or something like that into it, right? Precisely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the philosophy. I mean, if you if you go in with the wind in your favor, then that forty uh, yard trip from the outside in isn't so bad. Yep. Yeah. Um, so so how did you go about carving that in? Did you have any thoughts on how you shaped it? Any other things when it came to preparing it um, that you were thinking about? Um, walk me through the details of that first food plot. Well, this was this was some thick and nasty, you know, because. Uh, stuff because of the, the sassafras trees and the vines. There's a lot of vines in here. Yeah. And so, you know, I I walked it. I used, you know, the Onyx app and I right. did some walking and I said, well, that's about three quarters of an acre. And and I saw the shape that I had walked in and, and the shape was dictated somewhat by the, you know, the, the topography and mm-hmm. also by where I just want to say, I am not taking those big trees out right. or whatever it is. So that, that was a phase one of it. So, um, identified a shape that I thought could be huntable and accessible and where I would put the blind all prior to uh, the dozer going in. So then I, we fired up the dozer, my son and I, and we dozed, uh, dozed this plot in. And and last year was the first year hunting it, and it, it proved successful. My son got a, a nice buck there, and uh, my great-nephew killed a, his first buck in there. Wow. And it, it was great. But, uh, you know, I think you need to be ready to evolve when when you're doing this stuff. So, you know, it worked, but not quite to the degree I wanted it to. There was um there was a fair amount of deer that were bypassing us just because they were headed to the water. You know, water first. They must be bedded all day, however it worked out. They were kind of skirting the plot. And then obviously the trail cameras would show us that they were there after dark. Yeah. So this year I went ahead and <clears throat> modified it a little bit. I uh increased the one end of it to kind of get out into that little travel corridor. So um, it's a little out of bow range, but certainly easily within gun range. I don't think there's a spot at over about 80 yards there, period, in the whole plot. But the other thing I did was when we took out those trees this year was um, brought the stumps that remained in the brush, and I placed them in, in a spot right across from the blind, uh, building out from the structure that was already there, what I ended up creating was a U-shape, okay? So any deer traveling this food plot from one end to the other was going to come past the, the bottom of the U, and, you know, that's the, the, the blind was at the very bottom edge of the U, yep. and the, the bottleneck I created was kind of in the bottom of the, the saddle of the U. 
Yep. If you're following me there. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So basically now uh, for archery season, I think that uh, any deer that passes through that plot uh, from east to west, even eating or not eating, is going to have to pass by that 35-yard point. And hopefully it's a it's a, a good buck and he's interested in the tree and he comes to 20 yards. Yeah. But the bottom line is, uh, you know, there was a little bit of – uh, evolving that took place this spring on that back plot. Yeah. Uh, one with shape and two with kind of pinching them in so we could get the archery shots yeah. that we wanted. I also saw that you, and you just mentioned one example of it, but you definitely, when you're when you're pushing out these timber plots, I've seen that you're taking the debris from it, whether it be stumps and root balls or some leftover tops and whatever, and it seems like you're using those strategically too um, to help manage where movement might be. Can you talk a little sure. bit about how you think about that too? Sure. And uh, <clears throat> it, it definitely does make a difference. Well, A, it can make them feel a little bit more secure. <laughs> B, it can give you this screen that allows you to get to the plot undetected. Yeah. And, and, but knocking a, not knocking the trees down and, and stacking up the, the root balls in that helped us with the, the bottlenecking of the deer, but uh, it also made it so that I could carve holes through there in spots maybe 25 yards from the blind. So yep. if they you know, wanted to travel across the plot, I know that good chance if they exit, they're going to take the easiest path. Not yep. saying they can't get out of there, but I am saying that if you give a deer an easier place to walk, a lot of times he'll take it. Yeah. And if that happens to be 25, 30 yards off the blind where you can get a shot, more power to you. Yeah. So, yeah, we definitely use the brush strategically and all the you know logs and that have been removed for firewood or otherwise. And why not? You have yeah. it and you got to put it somewhere. So uh, I prefer to have it a lot of times at my back so that when I look um, out across the plot – as much as possible, I can see deer filtering through the timber because that's what I enjoy. Yeah. You know, you see a set of legs moving through and you're up with the binoculars instantly yeah. and you're just, oh, hoping, hoping, is it a good one? Yeah. What is it? What something's coming through the brush? I can see it. So I try not to screen myself too much, yep. but, but I will place stumps and some brush in order to push a deer closer to me as they pass through the food plot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that you put a lot of thought into each one of these little aspects of the plots um, didn't seem like there was much done by accident. And I feel like that's a really consistent thing I see with all the different people I talk to, those those best hunters. Um, they always um, are detail-oriented. They're, they're not cutting, you know, they're not making shortcuts. They're, they're thinking through the long run um, what all these things might mean, how each little piece could stack on top of each other and, and give you that best possible chance. Right. Another thing that... Uh we did was try to incorporate some of our own water, you know. Yeah. So, so that's actually uh, last year was the first year for that, and I set up a nice blind over a water hole that I created, uh, simply by dozing a, a depression into an area and then lining that with a big tarp. And then after that, we put uh, oh a foot of dirt back on it to protect it because you know from the deer's hooves, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I've had to fill it. Since I don't have water flowing on the place, I, yeah. I have a you know an old water tank that maybe holds three four hundred gallons. And several trips later, I had it I had it filled up in a blind set over. Now, uh, in this particular case, the very first one, I elected not to have any food sources around it because I thought you know that would be what an all day rut sit this could be. I was just picturing this in my mind. You know, we're just off some of the bedding and the thickets, and and these deer are thirsty. They've been running, chasing does, yeah. on the move all the time. How fun it could be to sit 
in this timber location uh, uh, throughout a day set and, and watch deer filter into this water through the woods and, and not have it be a great big wide open space uh, of, of green. So, again, I'm, I'm experimenting, yeah. mind you, but what I saw last year uh, made for some of the most uh, fun Michigan hunting that I've had in a long time. Wow. Uh, the, you know, even once it got cold, the deer were coming in and punching their feet through the, the ice right wow. along the edge just to get drinks, and it was steady flow. Now, this first year, uh, you know, by the oldest deer I saw do that was two and a half. So not that we drew in a lot of big bucks right off the bat with that new water hole, but it drew the deer. And in my belief, all these year and a halves that came in steadily will someday be three and a half, four and a half year old deer. They're accustomed to drinking there. Yeah. And I'm hoping that'll work. And uh, the turkeys loved it just as much. Squirrels, raccoons, everything That's drinks cool. out of this thing. It's pretty neat. Yeah, the deer would punch holes in the ice, and then the deer, uh, the turkey would come and drink out of all those hoof wow. prints. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Um, another thing you mentioned to me when it came to water is the fact that you'd, you'd found that this definitely worked. And then there's this temptation, though, maybe like, oh, if I found a water hole works, if one water hole works, I bet you two and three and four and five and six and seven and 15 water holes would work <laughs> even better, right? And they would. And, uh, they would work. They would work. But you said, no, I actually want to be careful with how many. Um, can you describe why? And, and I saw you've got two other water sources that you were working on, but you wanted to keep it um, a relatively low number. Can you can you talk about why? Well, uh, the, the theory is anyway that uh, if you have a lot of water holes it's going to be a little harder to have one be called a destination water hole yeah you know what i mean so if i throw a, a water hole in every food plot and in, in every corner of the woods it i'm sure is very good for the deer and the critters but uh, i think that it you know spreads out your opportunities for harvesting those same animals so while i want to have one on each side maybe uh, uh, that creates a stop point for the deer to come and get a drink I, I don't want so many that I have no clue where to hunt. So right now I'm looking at it like I'm going to have a, a three water holes at the end uh, of this. And I'll have a particular deer I'm after who tends to spend more time on the reconnex over on this side of the farm or he's exiting into the grain fields on that side of the farm. Yep. I'll know that the water hole I want to pursue him over is this one, yeah. the one he's exiting near. So, you know, one thing uh, I've learned that uh, even with – just 84 acres, and I realize that's not a whole lot, uh, I will find that my cameras do not turn up the same buck on every camera. Mm -hmm. Bottom line is there's cameras I never saw bucks from the other end of the 84 acres on. That, that's kind of amazing to me, yeah. but yet it's true. And you would see constantly the same deer on the same cameras. Occasionally capturing them on the others too, but there may be two or three cameras and you never saw that deer Isn't that on. Weird. It I'm is because that's not that. that much land. Yeah. It really isn't. But when you picture a deer's home range, you don't know if you're in the middle of it yeah. or if you're on an edge of it. So when I get uh, you know pictures of a buck just on one or two cameras all the way to one side of the farm, I'm I'm just making the assumption that I'm just on the edge of his core area. Yeah. Now I'm not going to say he'll never wander. You know. After the first rut's over, he could be anywhere. It's yep. true. But they do have a core area. And I think that it's actually quite discoverable, even on the small pieces like 84 acres. Yeah. What is your trail camera strategy on, on these pieces here? We didn't really talk about that, but how do they work into your hunting? Do you, I know, you know folks like Mark Drury are really big into getting a lot of photos, but mostly 
by using last year's photos, are you planning your hunts this year? Because he's looking at a lot of the annual patterns and trends like that. Um, are you are you doing that kind of thing? Are you just trying to see what kinds of deer are out here? Or are you using cameras to actively choose where to hunt right now? And you're getting pictures yesterday and you're hunting here the next day because of it. Uh, where do you fall on that spectrum? Well, inventory, for sure. I'm always taking inventory. And yes, I do keep uh, all the pictures from previous seasons because... One thing that uh, I've discovered is it's a, if a deer tends to hit a particular area at a particular time of the year, he'll be consistent with that the next year. Good chance, if he's still around, that two-year-old now as a three-year-old is likely to be hitting that same food plot in December, which just tells you something about his character. And, and there's a good chance it'll be the same the following mm-hmm. year. Uh, so there's the inventory side of things is just maybe well back when you could use mineral you know you get your mineral out there and yeah. and you just kind of take a general inventory throughout your area of what bucks made it through and then as season season Im- approaches you know I'm moving off uh, of that and I'm getting on green uh or in this case maybe a water hole <laughs> as well yeah. but I'm getting it to the, to the food plots uh, especially you know the clover and that and trying to see what what deer are hitting particular food plots at that point but by the time October gets midway through, uh, I'm changing that tactic as well because deer, the bucks in general, uh, are, you know, are not thinking of their bellies quite as much now. So I'm moving the cameras off to get them on scrapes at that point. By mid-October, I, I've got them pretty well all on scrapes and maybe just one per food plot as a general monitor. And, you know, uh, maybe even I have that, you know, on a, on a food plot timer and is taking a picture every five minutes during the, you know, the morning hours and the, yep. and the evening hours like they do now. So um, a couple of different tactics, but the scrapes become my primary focus after mid-October. And until, when, you, when you put them on the scrapes, how far, like how close to the scrape do you, do you set your cameras? I've heard some people talk and, and say that they're worried about spooking deer, so they don't want to have the camera right on the same tree that the scrape might be on, um, or they'll try to put it high and angle down. I've been kind of conflicted on this. I've, I've ran scrape. I've ran cameras right on a tree that's 10 yards away or five yards away from the scrape, and it seems fine. And I've, I've had other times where there will be one buck, and I get one picture of him, and I never get it again. And I wonder, hey, is that because I had that camera there? Should it be putting these high and farther away? I, I don't know what the answer is. Where are you on that? Well, um, <laughs> I think you're right. It can affect them. And, and, and I've had the uh, red light cameras, and I, I definitely feel that uh, – that does have an effect on them. I yeah. mean, they do turn and look at it. So, uh, and you may not see that deer again. Or I've even seen them in the third and fourth picture are them running away. Right. So I know it affects them. But uh, so what I've tried to do is go, you know, all, all with cameras that don't have that. Certainly not the regular flash anymore yeah. like they yeah. used to. But even gotten away from the red, uh, just to improve my odds there. But in, in question to where do you put it? Um, I would consider access usually. Hmm. You know, that's I, I'm putting it on a side of the tree that allows me the least invasive footwork. <laughs> okay. Uh, and from a standpoint of getting to and from it, and uh, honestly, I like scrapes that uh, occur on old old laneways. Uh, one reason being, you can take an electric vehicle or you know maybe a golf cart and slip back in there, never put your foot track down at all, yeah. and roll right up to the camera with your gloves on and flip it open and change your card. Yep. Uh, the, other, the other thing that I've started doing for the food plot sake is 
I'm mounting the cameras right on the blinds. And, hmm. and that way, when I go to my blind to hunt, I can pull the card. Uh, so I, I use that tactic quite a bit too. Plus, uh, you know, I like to put the tree coys out. So um, there's usually a tree 20 yards in front of the blind. So that gives me a natural spot to put, whether they're just uh, uh, up there scent marking the tree or rubbing it or putting a scrape on the gl- ground. Uh, does and bucks alike are attracted to those, and, and you do get quite a lot of pictures that way. Yeah. Um so back to your food plots, you're, you're talking about, you know, having cameras over these food plots, monitoring what's there um, in these kind of satellite food plots. Like you, you, you described one of those that you're, you're carving into the timber and there's two others like that on this piece that you carved in. Um, you described to me kind of a, seems like a relatively consistent food plot plan for each one of those. Um, can you walk through what that is, why you chose to plant these several different varieties? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, a basic philosophy of mine is with, with your food sources, uh, now aside from grain, and we're just talking about uh, typical food plants of, you know, turnips and radishes and clover and the like, I like to see a balance of 50 to 60% in the clover overall. And the reason is uh, it, it's habit forming. Clover is works all year. Unless they completely annihilate it, they're going to paw to it, down to it in the snow. Yeah. I mean, they're going to go for it. And and that's not different in radishes all the time, but radishes are not there all year or turnips. Mm-hmm. Clover is. So it's it's awesome for the turkey hunting as well. Uh, but bottom line is that clover is fairly easy to grow, fairly easy to maintain, and it's a, it's a year-round attractant. So to me, habit forming is good. If you're going to hang on to a property for more than three years – You've got an opportunity here to form habits with those year-and-a-half bucks right. that are on your property. And there's usually a lot of them in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, and a few of them are going to make it through. And, and if you can form some good habits coming to that clover or whatever, that's a great thing. Now, get fast forward. You're, you're thinking about season. Uh, in end of July, of course, I'm, I'm burning down, you know, what's not clover. And I'm turning it up and getting it, prepping the soil, getting my lime on there. Usually, actually, that's more towards spring, but getting the fertilizer put in and worked into the soil. And then for, uh, you know, planting strategy, I've, a lot of times we'll put the clover, uh, I like the non-typical clover real well, and I'll put that around the outside edges of the food plot. And part of the reason is, you know, clover is pretty shade tolerant compared to other plants. It tolerates that well, and, and the roots of the trees get out in there some, and, and we'll you know, drain uh, nutrients away from other plants, clover will su- survive that and, and will keep on where other types of plants won't. So a lot of times there'll be an outside ring of clover. But then when it comes to the food itself uh, out in the center, I like to um, stagger, seasonally stagger what's planted there. You can't run radishes or turnips year after year in the same spot. So I may take a food plot and draw a line from my blind across the food plot. Left side, I might plant, uh, you know, tall tine tubers or some sort of uh, um, winter bulb, sugar beets, last bite, uh, maximum, yep. some sort of brassica. Yeah. Okay. And then on the other half, maybe is a, a resting year. Maybe I plant some chicory um, it, along with some oats. Now, uh, a lot of people plant rye and winter wheat, and everybody's got their their favorite sure. thing. But um, you know, for me, generally, I find that it's pretty easy to get a good stand of oats and 
Uh, if you can mix that in with something else, uh, you know, more power to you. But it, what it does is it really gives that land some time to rest because if you plant, uh, and we've discovered this, you know, year over year, if you plant maximum in the same spot, it becomes less and less productive in the in the uh, funguses and the insects that survive that in the soil tend to be there waiting for it next year. And yep. it just seems like a snowball. So, you know, we're trying to trying to alternate them just so that doesn't happen so much. It's tough when you've only got, you know, one acre to work with. Yeah. But, you know, we you, all you can do is do your best, and, and that's a small effort right there to split them up. Yeah. Now, now you talked about the clover. You've got the clover ring. And then also on one of those food plots, I think it was the first one, you talked about how you were going to leave a, a larger section of that in clover as well. And we were, we were. Um, I was asking about how you maintained it because one of the things I've been dealing with lately is just trying to maintain a small clover plot that I've been working on a piece of property that I can hunt, um, and you know, just dealing with the weeds, dealing with different things, trying to make sure, um, make sure you're timing all the different maintenance things right. That's what like uh, the, I always have the questions like when should I be mowing or when should I be spraying or when should I be. It, it's just there's there's a little bit to it. And you said that you have kind of a system for managing your, your clover. <laughs> Can you walk us through what your system is? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> kind of what we discovered a little bit by accident, actually, years and years ago, was that I went to burn down a clover plot. And I— and When I, you say that, you mean spray? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah right? Roundup. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, true. I am— to, Not fire. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we're burning it down with a chemical burn. Yes. is what it is, see. And, uh, you know, I think I may have gotten a little bit light on the Roundup or whatever, and—, and uh, go back in a couple of weeks to get ready to plant it and what in the world the clover that's in it has survived and, and it's starting to spring back and I'm like what the heck's going on here so uh, long story short it occurred to me that well if clover could actually survive a heavy dose of Roundup what happens if I spray my clover with a light dose of Roundup you know will it still be effective enough on the other weeds in that mm-hmm. and again you know not being afraid to experiment uh, it turned out to be quite an affordable option to spray it that way. And uh, I ended up mixing about three-quarters of an ounce to the gallon, you know, of, of uh, Roundup in the water. So that's a fairly light dose, but yet heavy enough it killed the weeds. So it, the clover would be stunted generally. Uh, it, it did yellow, and then it would wait for the rain. So I'm doing this in, say, the end of August, right? And... Uh, you know, for a couple of weeks, they say that it's best to spray and go on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> it honestly is because I had done it in the past and I went back in, you know, 10 days and went, uh-oh, this time I've really done it. You're not going to have anything to hunt over here. Right. But but yet a month goes by and you've had some good rains and suddenly the only thing that's green in that plot is clover. And not only that, without any competition, it just blows up. Yeah. So I've ended up with some very, very good food plots uh, of clover with that method and by the time that October rolls around it's had a solid six weeks of growing and it's it's lush works really well now throughout the course of the spring and summer I'll mow it a couple times you know uh, just to keep the weeds in check that are trying to come up through the clover but at the end of the day usually long about end of August mid-August I'm going to go ahead and hit it with a a dose of Roundup, and I kind of I try to look and see when there's some rain in the future. Mm-hmm. I want the Roundup to be effective enough to knock out the weeds, but I, you know, I don't want the clover suffering indefinitely on drought conditions right. with that Roundup on it. Yeah. So, you know, if it's going to rain in the next seven eight days, I'm I'm happy, and I that's I try to shoot for those times. Yeah. 
Um, and when, when's the right time to mow? You said you mow several times. What are you waiting for to say, okay, now it's time to just wait till it starts seeding out or are you waiting till the weeds reach a certain height? Uh, when do you choose to go in there and do that? Well, yeah, I would say, you know, wait for it to seed out, but here's, here's the thing. I mean, it, in June, uh, when you think you're due for that first mowing, I've discovered that it's just not worth it. We hit fawns. So we stopped that practice, you know, at the time that I felt like it, we should probably get on it because, the, you know, the summer grasses are now starting up through the, the clover. Um, so you feel like, man, I should maybe get out there and get that mowed before mm-hmm. them get going. The downside was, you know, you, you hit a fawn or two and it kind of yeah. discourages you from Yikes. doing that. So yeah. so my first mowing of the year generally is a little later than I would have liked and the grass is a little bit taller than I would have wanted, but at least the fawns are on their feet and, yeah. and it's not an issue. And then a lot of times, you know, mow one more time, say, you know, towards the, uh, oh, right the end of July and then the weeds in the, in the clover has a couple few weeks to recover and by the time I actually do the roundup application to, to knock out the weeds. But the other part of that equation is we, uh, to maintain a good clover plot, if you want it to last five years, you got to feed it. You know, you know, they make their own nitrogen, so that's not necessary. But mm-hmm. but we fertilize it like like any other. We try, treat it as a crop because it is. And uh, we can, Tom and I have stretched some of these clover plots out to five and seven years in good shape. You know, eventually, you, you there's no doubt you need to start over, but... Um, so what we'll do is we'll knock it out of the rotation, you know, m- remove it from clover. Now, this is not the ring style. This would be if we had a whole plot of clover is yeah. what I'm really referring to now. But so after five years, let's say, we go ahead and, and uh, do a hard chemical burn on it with some uh, more aggressive chemicals and then go ahead and turn turn it under and we'll run a, a year of brassicas on it. I mean, the clover's just pumped it full of nitrogen and... You know, the turnips and the radishes are nitrogen hogs. So that first year out of clover, they tend to do really, really good. And uh, if we were going right back into clover the very next year, along with those radishes, we seed clover again. And those uh, seedlings will take root. And, and, you know, after our year of brassicas, the next spring it comes up quite strong. And generally speaking, uh, we will do some frost seeding in March just to bolster the weaker spots in the clover. Mm-hmm. And, you know. It's, it's not terribly expensive way to do something, so you generally would do that too. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. Comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want. And mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. 
At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. So speaking of, of food sources... Another, you've got all sorts of, you have several strategically placed food plots, which, which we've talked about. Um, three of these being tucked on the edges of, sort of on the edges of your big of your big timber. Um, but then scattered throughout the big timber, I saw you have a bunch of different apple trees throughout. And you've been doing some things to try to begin um, putting those apple trees in a better position by doing some girdling or some yeah. other things like yeah. that. Can you talk about what you're doing, why you're doing that? <clears throat> well, it's my, my thought that, you know, this was an old farmstead many years ago and had apple trees on it. Of course, people grew their own food more back then. But uh, And then when the pasture got let go, I think the birds and the animals did a good job of spreading apple seeds. So throughout this timber, we've got a lot of apple trees. Uh, the issue really being is they're starting to be uh, become shaded out or mm-hmm. killed by the more mature hardwoods that have taken so many years to get it going. And uh, so, you know, uh, it's such an advantage to have a good apple tree that it's worth, to me, uh, girdling some of the trees that are shading them out to give them a look at the sun. They're just not tall enough. Yeah. And uh, vines, we're trimming some vines away, anything that's, you know, trying to kill the apple tree off. And if we can stretch some more years out of that and get some apples on the ground all throughout the woods. Now, I know that's a scattered food source, but uh, who wouldn't want a bunch of apple trees growing in their in their woods? So it does it does work. They eat them. Uh, they, they love to uh, make scrapes under them. It's just a good low-level tree. But if you don't protect them by, you know, some, some, they'll be gone. I can't tell you how many dead apple trees there are in this woods, and that's the whole reason. They've been shaded out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're, uh, you know, some of my cherry trees are having to get girdled to provide some light into the apple trees, but you can't have it all. So, yeah. Uh, Can you explain what you mean by girdling, how exactly oh, you're doing that? Yeah. Well, basically taking the chainsaw and cutting a ring around the the tree a couple inches deep because that's where the nutrients move up through the trees on the outsides of the the tree just underneath the bark. So by severing that lifeline to the tree... Uh, you know, the tree will die off. Uh, I don't necessarily want it laying on the ground. This wood is thick enough as it is. And uh, in, a, in a thick woods, it's also very tough to topple a tree mm-hmm. uh, when it's amongst other trees. It just stands there <laughs> leaning up against another tree. But So I found that, you know, girdling is probably the effective tool to just kill that, that particular tree. Uh, don't have to do it a lot, but if I can protect a small grove of apple trees and, you know, get them a few more years out of life out of them, I will. Yeah. It's, it's, it's worth that to me. Yeah. 
No, it's nice to have, like you're saying, it's nice to have those those little additional food sources scattered throughout. Well, I've I've walked a lot of timber, you know, from Iowa to Missouri to Illinois to here, and uh, I can tell you this is the first time I've really seen this many apple trees in a woods. It's it's rare. It's that rare. So, yeah, I'm I'm going to do what I can to protect them. It's very cool between the apple trees and the rolling topography in there. And uh, the already tremendous bedding cover, um, it, it sets up really nice. Now, tell me this, though. You have this farm here in Michigan that you can hunt, and then you also have some farms you hunt and have in, in Iowa, and you've had a Missouri farm and things like that. What do you have to do here on the Michigan farm, or what have you been thinking about in the Michigan farm as far as your habitat work or plan or process? What have you done, if anything, that's different here than on those farms because of the specific challenges we have here. Is there anything that comes to mind? You're, do you have to be more careful hmm. about certain things or do you have to put a little bit more thought into certain things or be more wary? I don't know. Well, is anything that jumped to mind? Yeah, I, I think it might, at least it surprised me. Maybe it'll surprise some other people. But, uh, you know, access is key. Mm-hmm. We've, we've talked about that uh, a lot. And, I think it may be even more key in Iowa. Now, we've said deer mm. do what deer do in Iowa, right? And they're yeah. more at home and they do and more free to make their vocalizations and do their stuff during daylight. So naturally, you would think, you know, that maybe Michigan's the one you better be more careful with. But the truth of the matter is um, if a person walks down the fence line in Iowa, it's a lot less commonplace and can be a lot more alarming to the deer, I think. Mm. So access actually becomes more important out there. Uh Whereas here, while I, you know, would never really want my scent to blow through the timber, believe me, but at the end of the day, deer smell humans in southern lower Michigan on a daily basis. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like I want my jet stream blowing right at the deer that are coming to me. They won't come. But if they catch a passing whiff, it could just be the lady walking her dog down the road. Right. You know, it could be just the farmer out checking his fences for the cattle. So they have to contend with people all the time. And if they always, always, you know, ran every time they got a little whiff, uh, they would never have a place to live. So while, you know, I think they'll avoid you for sure and you can't have your scent blowing at deer that are approaching you, they won't do it. I think that— if your wind does drift across them, as long as it's not steady, it may you may get away with that, let's say, a little bit better in Michigan. I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive, right. but they're so unindated or inundated with human scent that uh, occasional whiff, I think, is just a little more commonplace. It's, um, it would be maybe the equivalent of hunting suburb bucks sometimes. Right. yeah. You know, and I wish that this, you know, farm maybe was in a different part of the county where there wasn't so so much uh, human traffic around. But uh, it's just hard to come up with that piece in southern lower Michigan. There's too many people and too many small pieces of ground. Yeah, yeah, there certainly is a lot of that. Now, what's next? Like, what's the next big thing you want to do out here that you haven't started yet? Is there still, like, a, a bucket list big project you really wish you could be able to put into action out here? Um or, or yeah. where do you see where do you see it going? Well, uh, you know, it all takes time. So, you know, in, in my my grand vision, so to speak, uh, one of the things I would like to do is take a, a two acre piece that's kind of in the middle and put a food plot. Now, mm-hmm. that yeah. sounds a little again counterintuitive, uh, 
but I've, I've navigated it through the <laughs> ups and downs of it, and I think that I can hunt that occasionally. But the, but the bigger thing that I'm trying to accomplish with that is if I can get a spot that's uh, two and a half acres, two, two and a half acres, I believe that I can, you know, raise soybeans on that. And uh, I know because of the deer numbers that it's going to require an electric fence, you know, and I'm going to have to once a week go out and change a battery on that or and make sure it's not knocked down. But I believe that I can grow a couple acres of soybeans out of that and and then release those beans once November hits or if I even want to wait till gun season, I could. But release those beans, meaning take down the fence. And now I've suddenly got this big food source that should be able to feed the deer for a couple months, maybe three. You know, it just depends on how many deer come in yeah. and eat there. But the idea behind that was really one of uh, – if I can feed the deer and give them something to drink, maybe a few of them are going to be able to live to be four years old because they didn't step out in front of a slug, <laughs> yeah. you know, across the fence. And and at the end of the day, if it works, I think everybody would benefit. Even even the surrounding ground are going to see more and bigger bucks out of the deal because I've protected so many year and a halves now. Will it work? I, like I told you before, it's all an experiment. I mean, I know a lot of things will work, and I and, and I, I do a lot of those things, but this definitely falls under the experimental part of it. And yeah. at the end of the day, if it fails, you know, and I don't like how it worked, it was too impossible to keep the deer out of it, uh, and I don't want a food plot in the middle of the woods, uh, Mother Nature will take care of that in about two years. <laughs> all yeah. i got to do is stop. And, and believe me, the... Uh, honeysuckle that's around and and all the prickers and blackberries and raspberries, everything's going to thicken that up. The weeds are coming, you know, and then the small trees. So it they're, they're, the risk is well worth it to me to see if this will work. And I'm kind of excited. Uh, it's just something I've never been able to do. Take a, take a solid chunk of timber and put a, put a big grain plot in the middle of it. So uh, it's going to take some time, though. I mean, that's a that's a lot of trees, a lot of firewood. Yeah, you know, and I, I got a, I will say there's probably a few logs in that area, so I've got a logger coming out to look at those, and yeah. it's uh it's forward looking, but uh, I enjoy it. I really like doing this sort of thing. You you made a good point out there earlier today in that um, we, we were talking that there's well there's this thing I'm working on, this thing I'm working on, this thing you know there's there's so many of these apple trees I could only get to a handful a year or whatever. Um, and then you made the point that you wouldn't want to try to go and do all of this all at once. Um, it's it's kind of a good thing to say, well, I've got this thing I can do next year, and I'll stretch this out over several years because, because to your point, it's the it's the process, it's the journey. Like managing a piece of ground for wildlife and hunting and deer and all these things, um, it doesn't. It, I would say it it shouldn't be just about like be able to shoot one giant buck it, it should be a really fun year-round process it should be a great way for you to interact with this place and get to know this place and yeah hopefully it leads to some great hunting um but you know you said you want to enjoy it and if you're stressing out because you have to cut down 50 different trees or you have to be out there every single day or or you're so stressed about not getting all these things done on your list that you don't enjoy it anymore then what's the point? Exactly right. And the bottom line is, from the time I got the first food plot done, the place had improved and was better hunting than it was before. 
So if I need to, you know, work on my Iowa farm and tinker and put a food plot in there or a water hole out there or, or Missouri, whatever the case may be, uh, so be it. And, and it doesn't all have to happen at once. So, you know, uh, I like to see things get done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I also realize that there's going to be a sense of loss that occurs once I've got all the big stuff done. Right. You know, there'll always be little things. But uh, once I get past that, I feel like, I feel like someone will be missing. Right. <laughs> so, so really, uh, my my goal is just to you know add one food plot a year, one water hole until I get where I'm going, and and then sit back and reap the rewards. But again, I, I'll, I'll miss that part of it. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'm going to get a few years of enjoyment out of changing this piece around, yeah. or at least maybe I'll find another piece too. I would like to. Keep my eyes open for something, uh, but it is—it's pretty difficult in Michigan to find a clean slate like this yeah. one. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, something that I liked a lot um, was that while we were looking at one of your food plots, you talked about the fact that um, a lot of what you're trying to do now is not just set yourself up for success personally, but hmm. trying to find opportunities and ways to use something like this to help other people experience these things that we've come to love hunting in the outdoors um, and how that's become part of, of, of your goals kind of maybe with this place and with what you're doing. Can you, can you just elaborate a little, little bit on and why that's something that matters to you now and, and how you're trying to try to do that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, uh, you know, I, I have killed a few Boone and Crockett deer now and, and it's very exciting and I love it. I I'm all in, trust me. But, and if you've ever sat behind a nine-year-old shooting his first buck, you know, that's something too. And, it, you know, it doesn't go home and hang on your wall or anything, but the memories that you make doing something like that are incredible. So for me, it's been, I don't want to say giving back, but, the, the, you know, a piece of ground like this does give you an opportunity to share that experience with others. And, and particularly in, in Michigan, I've, it's you know, there's there's a lot of deer here, uh, and if you have the right place, the right setup, you're going to see a lot of deer, and and I think that's a great way to get young people involved. You know, uh, they've grown up now with a phone in their hands or some sort of mm-hmm. electronic device that you know it stimulates them constantly. So to take a deer hunting, like when I started in the, the '70s, take a kid deer hunting, uh, boy, you had to be all in because you might hunt all day and not see a deer. But, you know, with this, you know, piece of ground, the 57, and, and now, you know, the additional ground that's with it, if I take somebody out, they're going to see some deer, and they're going to they're gonna have a good time seeing them. And, and what you've probably done there is created a lifelong deer hunter because, you know, once it's in under your skin, you know, <laughs> it's hard to get rid of that bug. We'll get there, yeah. Yeah, but you do have to enjoy it and, and get something out of it and not be too cold. I've I've taken to using blinds now uh, almost exclusively. For one, they contain your scent a lot better. But, you know, you can uh, move about in them a little freer, which is good. As you get older, you're a little more fidgety. You don't <laughs> sit quite as still as you mm-hmm. once did. But kind of like with the young guys, the 9-year-olds, 8-year-olds that go out with you, or even younger, I mean, I'm sure uh, with the right blind, you take a two or three year old out my kids have been hunting with me for a very long time out of a blind and uh the windows are high enough that they could play with their toys on the floor yeah. and get away with it but yeah. at least when the deer came out i could point them out and then they were all excited you know 
So I'm doing a little bit of that. We're trying to get some youth out, and uh, I've got a couple people in mind this fall that have never killed a deer or never killed a buck, and I'm hoping to get them out and get them their first deer, and uh, I'll get as much out of it as they will. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping maybe to use that Liberty Hunt to get a uh, disabled veteran out, someone, again, that may not have that, you know, easy place to go see some deer. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, these new blinds are very easy to get into and out of and situated in, so I'm hoping to do something like that as well. That's great. Yeah. And uh, um, my son's girlfriend never been deer hunting, and she went with us last fall, and she's like, wow, <laughs> this is really cool. Because, awesome. you know, the deer and the turkeys and squirrels, it's yeah. it's a zoo out there. And yep. uh, so, you know, there's another person right there that she's now going to go get her hunter safety this summer. And, and she wants to go hunting. She wants to start shooting a bow. So, uh, you know that, that our sport is struggling to maintain its numbers. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of people that oppose it. So, um, it behooves us to introduce people to the hunting. And so, those of us that have a, a good piece to share... Uh, should do it. Yeah, I think that's a great. I think that's a great point because it definitely is. I, I mean, of course, well, this goes without saying, but to be able to be in a position to buy a piece of property, obviously, in almost all cases, takes a whole lot of work and time and effort to 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 be able to be in a position to do that. But it also is is a, is a privilege to be in that position too. And there are some people that they maybe won't have that privilege. So I think it's really cool that you're taking that. Um, that blessing of yours and helping others that maybe don't have that same opportunity. I think that's just a great example for a lot of us to look at. Um, another great privilege of yours is that you're out getting to hunt in Iowa too. <laughs> yeah, in these other well, states. that's right. Spend most of my time actually. Yeah, but, spend spend yeah. a lot of time there. Um, yeah. Is there just is there anything going on out there when it comes to the managing of a property or hunter or habitat? Um, is there anything out there that that is just other than you talked about access is a little bit different? But are there any other projects you guys are working out there on those farms, um, or is there anything that Tom is doing out there that is just really different than what we've been talking about? Hmm. I don't. Well, we're you know talking about the eighty-four acre woods. We're kind of in the timber, and that's something that we don't find ourselves doing out there. We're able to pick up. Uh, field edges and turn those into food plots and draw them out of the thicker spots. So um, tactically, it can be a little bit different out there in that you don't hardly ever have to go in the timber. If we are in the timber, it's because it's the rut yeah, and it's on. And uh, so outside of the rut, we're pretty well hunting the, the food sources, you know. Um, it's, so that's a little different. If a person in Michigan has a piece of t- woods to hunt, he's got to walk through it, period. Yeah. I mean, there's just no way to necessarily get around it otherwise. But it seems like out there we have a, a little bit better. It just seems roomier, you know. Yeah. The pieces of ground are so much uh, larger in general out there. If if someone has a two or 300-acre field here, it's pretty well fence rows are ripped out and it's just big old cornfield, right. you know, and those fields do exist out there and even even bigger, but the tracts of land in general are so much bigger that uh, they take in a lot more uh, cover. You might be only four of you hunting a few hundred acres instead of four of you hunting 40 acres, yeah. you know. Yeah, uh, and, and that makes a big difference. In Missouri and, and Iowa, 
uh, Illinois, and probably be another state that included. That what makes those states different than Michigan? And I don't know, maybe you've never thought of this, but uh, in those states, you don't have a swamp. It doesn't exist. Yeah. In those states, water moves. Period. If it falls down, it moves until it gets into a stream and then a river, and yeah. off it goes. There are no swamps. It's just, and and so we have that to our benefit here because it does give the deer a great spot to, to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes us a little bit unique is all the lowland and wetland right. that, that we have here. But the other thing is most of that rolling ground in, in say, Iowa or Missouri um, was once upon a time cattle ranch. I mean, they farmed for cattle. So all the rolling ground tended to be turned into grassy fields for them. Yeah. Well, in... Keeping with that, they put reservoirs everywhere. So literally, if a raindrop falls out there, <laughs> it's pretty much going to go somewhere. Yeah. So they created a lot, a lot of reservoirs, uh, watering holes for the for the cattle. So uh, <laughs> they're really all over. So we don't use water holes quite as much out there, you know, as, as we do here. It just seems like there's a lot of them and we're not uh, – well, I'm not going to say not. We do hunt over them, but it just doesn't seem to be quite as big a factor as a nice big green food plot is. Yeah. Let's put it that way. But here, um, you know, if a deer has to go three, 400 yards for water, he's likely to get shot at. Mm-hmm. So if you can put a water hole inside your timber, uh, you've got a different, it's a game changer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, something I've always liked to say, and this this is there's probably no factual basis to this. I just like to say it because I'm from Michigan. But I always like to say that if you can kill a mature deer in Michigan, you could do it anywhere. This hmm. is what I've always thought. Like this is one same thing. You could say the same thing. If you could kill a mature buck in New York or Pennsylvania or maybe Georgia or one of these other high pressure states, I'm not sure what you know how it all ranks. But I, that's always been my thought. So if you kill in here, you can get it done anywhere. So you can kill mature deer in Michigan, and you've been able to kill mature deer in Iowa. Now, I'm sure he won't listen to this, so don't worry about what he's going to think about you saying this. But if you took Tom Ware from Iowa and threw him in Michigan, could he kill a mature deer here? Uh, Tom is good. <laughs> he is yeah. good. Yeah, he's he's going to find the the most mature deer. Uh, will he stay in Michigan? No, <laughs> no, he's Fair enough. he he's gonna he's gonna. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. Um, He'll be heading back. No, he he's not going to be here probably with me this fall. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, yeah. But to, to your point, um, there's a lot of truth to what you say. If if you're a good hunter in Michigan, odds are you're going to be very good in the western states as well. Strategies vary a little bit, but um, so what you have to know in Michigan to be able to kill a good buck. Simply translated out west means you will yeah. <laughs> kill a good buck because it is easier in those states, a lot less pressure. Yep. So, I mean, and you know, it, I don't know if the same is always true. I think that in Iowa, there's plenty of uh, you know old school farmers that just wait till the shotgun season and they go out and they sit in the same spot they always sit, and for whatever reason, they always kill one there. Well, yeah. I don't feel that you could take those people and drop them in Michigan. Yeah, I, it wouldn't work. They, yeah. They, you know, it's been a little bit too easy for them in that there's not that many hunters out there. And, you know, they've probably seen the deer coming out to the food plot for a month or two now. Or, yeah. or just that spot's just always worked over there by the oak tree. And, and it's probably true. Um, 
But, yeah, turnabout, if I think Michigan hunters, if they're good here, are going to be good there. Yeah. And they're going to have more fun probably yeah, yeah. because they're going to see some some serious buck fights see and they're going to hear more. some snort wheezes. And, yeah. yeah, they're going to they're gonna be excited. I, I know uh, the, the minute uh, I started hunting out there over a decade ago, that was it for me. I had to be there. Yeah, it's it's hard to argue. It's it's a whole lot of fun. I, I love hunting in Michigan. I love hunting these other states. It's just different kind of experience. But when you go somewhere like you know Iowa or Ohio or another western state, it is something special. And I would encourage anyone to give it a shot. And you don't need to own land to do it. You can certainly hunt public land, have a really cool experience. You can get permission still and have a really cool experience. Um, but that's that's been one of my favorite things over the course of the last 10 years that I've started really traveling is just having a diversity of hunting experiences, getting to hunt in different trains, different being around different cultures of deer hunters, being able to see all sorts of different scenarios from what's present in Michigan to what's in Ohio to what's in Montana to Iowa to Illinois to Pennsylvania. It's all different. It's all pretty cool in its own way. Um, and, I, and I'm kind of left with the thought that a deer is a deer in Michigan or Iowa. But in Michigan, they're just more so. They're just more so of a deer. <laughs> Everything's just cranked up. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a deer on edge. Yes. <laughs> for, for sure. And, yes, and uh, I, I've spent my share of time on public ground in, in states, you know, Colorado, Nebraska, uh, you name it, in New Mexico. And I have killed some game out there. And you're right. It is... Uh, now we're talking about maybe different species in whitetail, but uh, a deer is a mule deer is still a deer, but yet it's a whole different hunt. I mean, you're in the sagebrush and oh, yeah. oak brush, and it's exciting to experience that. And I would encourage people to do it because it's not that expensive. A lot of those states are over the counter, mm-hmm. and if you think you can't go out on public land and see some, you're wrong. Oh yeah, and they're there. Yeah, you might not uh, always get a giant, but I'll tell you when you do something that's out of your comfort zone and you go out to these public lands, uh, success doesn't have to be measured in inches. Yep. Uh, just managing to harvest one can be a, a small victory and, and a fun change of pace along the way. Oh, yeah. Even just going out there and surviving it at all would be a victory <laughs> in many cases for some people. So, yeah, I think this is, I think this is great. What I, what I enjoy about what I'm able to do is I guess talk to people from all different walks of life within the hunting world. I guess talk to some people that just hunt public land and they just get out there and they, they're finding great deer and they're having a really great time and they get a, they get a wide breadth of different experiences because they're hunting all these different places all this time. And then you get to talk to someone who owns a farm, maybe like you do, and you get to have a great experience and you get to manage deer and hunt deer and, and kill some great deer and you get to have like a really deep experience with a single place. And I think there's there's something cool and unique about all of that. And I think all of these add to this great big potluck of, of what it is to be a hunter. Um, and I'm really glad that all of us are in that big pot together and that we can kind of learn from all of our different experiences. And so I've enjoyed hearing about your experience, how you're doing things here in Michigan, how you've been able to do some things out in these other states and bring it back and, and kind of mix and match. Um, and it's encouraging and exciting to see someone – doing what you're doing here in a state that's not always easy, but you're still having a lot of great great success and having a lot of fun. And uh, 
I, I just thoroughly enjoyed our chat and getting to see it here in person. So, so yeah. thank you well, for that, Scott. I appreciate you coming out. And I'd like to pick your brain, too, when we're out there, you know, yeah. another set of eyes. Hey, thank you for that. I'm, I'm always always going to be down for that. Uh, if people want to see some of your hunts in the future, is there anywhere you can direct them? Well, uh, Drury has put a lot of them out on YouTube. They're DODTV. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of them out there. You can actually search Scott Manifold. And I know I've done it <laughs> to see what's out there. Yeah. But, yeah, there's actually actually quite a few of them out there. And uh, currently, um, Tom and I, are, uh, along with Mike Clementson, are partners on Bow Madness on the Outdoor Channel. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, we do some stuff on Pursuit Channel for Natural Born Killers. That would be pretty much anything we've done uh, with a gun. Okay. Gets put on that program. So, yeah. There's some places out there, and if you, especially if you have cable or dish TV, you can get in there to some of those channels and check it out. Excellent. Well, I'll definitely check them out. Checking out the YouTube videos here. That's what I'm always on. Yeah. And uh, I know you've had some 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 great bucks that are out there. So yeah. Well, watch for us on Deercast this fall. Uh, that that is a phenomenal app. I use it yeah. religiously, and I'm not just saying that. It it works superbly, and uh, it also gives us a chance to you know right after our harvest post the kill out there for that is cool. for everybody to see what's happening. And I mean, it's a, it's about as close to live as you can get on something like that. And just a great format that is a fun way to do it so all right well thank you scott and uh hopefully we'll be seeing some big old bucks on Deercast for me come this fall thanks and that will be a wrap today so thank you all for tuning in best of luck on your upcoming turkey hunts or habitat projects or whatever it is you might be doing out in the woods and fields these days and until next time stay wired to hunt I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.